The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. That's the simple text of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that gave American women the right to vote and which was ratified in August 1920. In the centennial year of this milestone in women's political equality, Brookings has launched a new series on gender equality in which Brookings scholars, public officials, and other experts examine not only the imperfect implementation of women's political participation, but also how gender equality has evolved since 1920 and the social, economic, and political forces that have kept the United States from achieving full gender parity. You can find this new initiative and its first set of essays on our website, brookings.edu slash 19A. That's the number 19 and the letter A. On today's episode of the Brookings Cafeteria, I'm excited to present a conversation among three Brookings scholars whose research illuminates some of the key issues in women's participation in the workforce and society, with attention to the gender impact of the coronavirus pandemic. Isabel Sawhill is a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution, working in the Center on Children and Families and on the Future of the Middle Class Initiative. She's co-author of one of the first essays in our 19A initiative. Stephanie Aronson is the vice president and director of the economic studies program at Brookings. And Molly Kinder is a David M. Rubenstein fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program at Brookings and an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts to get information about and links to all of our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, The Current, and our events podcast. And now, here's Isabel Sawhill moderating the discussion with Stephanie Aronson and Molly Kinder. Thank you, Fred. And I am very excited to be part of the launch of the 19A series at Brookings. I think we have posted four essays already, one by Susan Ware, who's a distinguished historian of the whole period when women were gaining suffrage, one by Lori Robinson and our colleague Michael Hanlon on women in the military, one by myself and Katie Guillaume on what we call the time squeeze that's been caused by the fact that more and more women have gone to work and are the backbone of middle-class prosperity. And one that we're very excited about by Janet Yellen, tracing the history of women's involvement in the labor market. That essay was something that Stephanie Aronson worked hard on with Janet when they were both at the Federal Reserve, and I'm sure she'll have more to say about that. Now, we planned this series on the 19th Amendment long before the coronavirus became part of all of our lives. And I think it's very fitting that we're not going to let a focus on women's equality be derailed by the current virus. But I do think the virus has actually highlighted some of the challenges and issues that women face in the labor market and in the home. And we're going to be uh, talking about those. And so let me start with this whole question of how women have been affected by the virus. And I think we know that in terms of health effects, 
What I read anyway is that men have more vulnerability to the virus from a health perspective. They're contracting it in slightly greater numbers than women, but women have been very hard hit in terms of the economics. So Stephanie Aronson, let me turn to you first to talk a little bit about the economic effects of the coronavirus. Let me just start off and say thank you, Belle, for inviting me here to join in this conversation with you. I think the employment report released last Friday, which showed data for April, showed that women were much more likely to lose their jobs than men were. So relative to February, the unemployment rate among women is up 13 percentage points compared to 10 percentage points for men. Now, these are shocking numbers for everyone, but it is clear that women have been particularly hard hit by the economic shutdowns related to the coronavirus pandemic. And this is actually in contrast to the usual pattern. So typically, the unemployment rate of men is more cyclical than that of women. Construction and manufacturing are highly cyclical industries, and men are more likely to be employed in those industries. But I think it isn't so surprising that we have seen that women have been harder hit so far in this event when you consider that many of the industries that have been the most affected by business closings, including retail and leisure and hospitality, and even some health fields for elective procedures, are heavily dominated by women. And not only all women have been affected equally, this speaks to another issue, which is that women of color and especially Hispanic women have seen the highest rates of job loss, again, because they're more likely to work in these service jobs, which have been so affected by the closings. And I think the only other thing I would just add is that this impact, the job loss, is particularly difficult because many of these jobs are low-paid jobs, and so that the women who are losing them do not have a lot of cushion to fall back on. So for these women, the special COVID benefits that have been passed, like the unemployment insurance benefits, are particularly beneficial, assuming that women are eligible to receive them and are able to apply. That's a really nice summary. And let me now turn to you, Molly. Molly Kinder has been doing a lot of work on what we call essential workers during this pandemic. And I've been fascinated to hear a little bit about your work. Tell us more about it and about what you're finding. Sure. Thanks, Belle. And I just want to echo Stephanie. It's such an honor to be in this discussion. And I'm so proud of Brookings for this terrific 19A series that we're doing. When we typically think of a big disaster in this country, whether it's a catastrophic weather event like Hurricane Katrina or flooding or an event like 9-11, so often the workers we think of in that response are first responders. They're military, they're firefighters, and the iconic image of 9-11 is a firefighter in New York City. This pandemic is different. I think the workforce that we're seeing really at the front lines, women are a very big part of that. And because of this role, this essential role that women play, which is that women are at the forefront of caring for others, whether it's treating those who are critically ill with the coronavirus, whether it's caring for the most vulnerable to the pandemic, which are older individuals at home or in nursing homes, making sure that we're fed. So cashiers and grocery stores or cooking the food that we're eating and even cleaning to make sure that hospitals are safe from the virus. This is work that women predominantly have done. And in this moment, it highlights how valuable this work is to society. And in fact, it's not just in the pandemic. 
well after this is over, women are going to play this critical role of caring for being the front line of healthcare, for making sure that our population, which is rapidly aging, and the number of older people who are going to need to enter into their older age in their personal home or in a care facility, it's women who have those roles. And yet at the same time, the interviews I'm doing with these workers reveal this gap between the societal value that they play and how underpaid and undervalued they feel and they are. So a lot of these roles the average earnings are just so low. So a typical home health worker makes just about $11.50 an hour. These are poverty wages, and these women are literally in poverty. They rarely have benefits like health insurance or paid leave. And the women that I've interviewed who are doing these roles, they're now risking their lives and trying to keep their family afloat in this hard time. They're struggling financially. Some of the stories have really been pretty heartbreaking about what they're enduring. So I think it's just showing this essential role women play, but at the same time, really with the exception of registered nurses and some of the higher paid health roles, a lot of this workforce that is female dominated are very low paid. Could you just say a little bit more, Molly, about how you got into interviewing these workers and how you've done it during this difficult time? I mean, I think when people think about Brookings, they think about the kind of paper and pencil research that we do so well. And you have done something more innovative. Just say a few words about that. Sure. Well, when this pandemic hit in our newspaper stories, we're hearing about grocery cashiers suddenly showing up and their job overnight has become essential, but also a risk to themselves my instinct immediately was, I want to go talk to these workers. I want to understand what they're going through. I want to understand what their needs are and how that should inform what Brookings, which has this huge policy influence, what are we asking for at this moment in terms of a policy response? So the first thing I did was just reignite some contacts I had with grocery workers that I'd interviewed in my past life at New America. I'd done some human-centered research in my last job where I interviewed fast food workers and grocery and retail workers, um, which I'll talk a little bit more about in this interview, what I learned. And so I just got in my car and I went to some of those grocery stores. I interviewed some of those workers. I took photographs of them because I feel that when we see a human face, we often connect better to the story. And my first post was about grocery workers. And immediately I wanted to start talking to the healthcare workers as well. And that was in part because my daughter had just been in the hospital for a week. She's one years old. This is just as coronavirus was hitting. I was struck by how many workers are in the hospital, not just nurses and doctors, cleaners, lower paid workers, front desk staff, security guards. And I thought, how are they being impacted by this virus? So I actually went through contacts at unions. I just cold called SEIU 1199. I had some other contacts who work in nonprofits that focus on home health workers. So I made a bunch of phone calls and emails, and I just started fanning out my network to get contacts who could put me in touch with workers. Hopped in my car, drove to Philadelphia, met some really amazing home health workers. I've interviewed about a dozen health workers and about two dozen workers total. I've recruited gig workers off the street on Craigslist ads, partnered with several unions, and it's been really powerful. And I would say that it's not only given me a sense of what the needs are and what the policy responses should be, but I'm finding that Brookings at using our platform to weave their personal stories into the policy writing has really been able to bring more, I think, policy attention and urgency to the issues. My hat is off to you for doing all of that. I think it adds tremendously to our work. 
And Stephanie, I want to invite you if you have any thoughts on other work that we're doing. Every time I look at a list of what Brookings is doing to address the coronavirus and all of the material we've put out on that and the kind of material we're thinking of putting out on it, I'm quite impressed. Anything you want to chime in on there? I think it is pretty remarkable the breadth of work that we've been able to produce in response to the coronavirus and the policymakers who we've been able to inform. I think for me, the issues that are the most salient right now are about how we are getting money to families who are in the greatest need for it and how we are working to protect their health. So there's been a lot of work going on at Brookings concerning the unemployment insurance system, what its shortcomings have been about our payment systems, how difficult it has been for us to get money to the households. Every family is supposed to receive at least $1,200. And how is it that it's been a very slow process getting that money out the door? And also how we can evolve our healthcare system to better meet the needs of everyone, especially during this pandemic. So greater use of telemedicine, broader insurance coverage. I think that there's a long-term research agenda for all of us related to how we need to reform our policies in the light of what we've learned about our current systems given the crisis. And I think we're off to a very good start on doing that across a broad array of areas, and there'll certainly be more to come. Yeah, I really think that's important that we're not only looking at the immediate impacts of the crisis, but also thinking about what the implications are for policy going forward. What kind of permanent changes do we need as well as temporary? And I always liked the way Andrew Cuomo put it recently. He said, let's build it back better. And that sort of summed it up for me. But I want to segue now to the historical story here. Not a lot of people know that the effort to pass the 19th Amendment was preceded by another pandemic, the flu, the Spanish flu in 1918-19. I mean, we all know that that occurred then, but we forget about the fact that the suffragettes had to worry about flu at the same time that they were fighting for more equality in the political arena. And when you look back, Stephanie, you see a huge amount of change in women's lives, and especially that work that you did with Janet Yellen when you were both at the Fed, I think lays that out very well. You want to say a little more about that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I think it's true that the time in which the 19th Amendment passed was really a time of just incredible social ferment, economic ferment, as you said, health crisis and the war ending. But the changes that were fomented in those years have really had a lasting impact on us, even into this century. And as the speech that I worked on with Janet talked about, one of the biggest of these changes was the gradual increase in women's participation in paid work outside of the home. So to be clear, women were always working And even 100 years ago, many women were contributing income to their families, for instance, by selling produce or providing boarding rooms, things like that. And African-American women have always had much higher participation rates than white women, especially married women. 
So I think another one of the big changes was that early on, even when women did work outside the home, they were typically the single women who were working. And there was a lot of pressure, both social and legal, that women leave the labor force when they got married. Now, that was much less true for African-American women who often had to work even when they were married to help support their families. And over time, what we've actually seen is a gradual increase in participation rates of white women and more recently Hispanic women to start to match those higher participation rates among African-American women. And I think really this has just been probably the biggest change in women's lives over this time period. And as women gradually became more attached to the labor market, their own expectations of their work lives changed and the legal system has changed also to reflect this reality of women's employment. So that early on when women were working outside the home, they worked while they were single or if they were married, they worked for a few years to maybe support their families, provide a little extra income. But over time, They began to view work as something they would be doing continually throughout the course of their lives. And they started to think more about having careers and not just having spots of employment. And as they made those changes in their own expectations of their work lives, they started to plan for those changes. So now, actually, women have higher levels of education than men do in part because they are preparing themselves to have careers in the labor force that will last throughout their lives, even through marriage and childbearing for those who go that route. And the legal system has to some extent changed also to accommodate that. So we don't have marriage bars anymore. In the 1970s, there was the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, which prevented employers from discriminating against pregnant women. There have been rules around sexual harassment and pay equity in various states. And so all those have contributed to supporting women's participation in the labor force. Although, of course, there are still a lot of barriers. Right. Molly, I want to see if you have anything to add, but let me just say first that one of the things that I am always struck by that most people don't know is that if you're looking at primary breadwinners, the people who are really responsible for the livelihood for their family, 40% of them are now women. Now, a lot of those are single parents, but a lot of them are two-parent families or two adult families in which the wife earns more than the husband. So that's a really dramatic change. And I don't think that our attitudes have quite kept pace with that. Our attitudes are still to think about women as secondary earners, as primary in the home and not in the labor force. And that's really just not true anymore. But Molly, anything you want to add in here? Yeah, so one of my research interests is how work has changed and how work is changing and how that impacts women in particular and low-wage workers. And when I look back at the last 30 to 40 years, I think there's a good news story for women in there in the sense that we've seen a lot of shrinking of those stable middle-class jobs that have historically employed men in production work and manufacturing and women in clerical work. And so we've seen this sort of barbell growth, so a growth in the high income and growth in the low income jobs. And women, because of what Stephanie was discussing with this huge increase in the rate at which they were getting higher education, 
move disproportionately into those professional jobs. So while those middle income jobs were squeezed for women, women were actually oftentimes moving up into better paying jobs. Whereas in that time, men's rate of educational attainment really didn't keep up. And a lot of them have fallen into low wage service jobs as they've lost these manufacturing jobs, which I think a lot of us think that is in part to do with some of the political moment we're in and some of the dark stories of unhappiness and the deaths of despair type research. So women, I think a lot have been resilient. I think it's been a good news story to date, but I do worry when I look out in the future. I did a lot of interviews last summer with women in those clerical roles. And I was struck that while we don't really think of clerical work as being passion oriented or fulfilling in the way we might think of a professor or a teacher or a nurse, the women that I interviewed, who a lot of them were older, found that those jobs provided the things they want out of a job, if not fulfillment emotionally, stable schedules, benefits, respect. They were not backbreaking jobs, so you can age into them. And then when I think about the interviews I'm doing now with these low-paid cleaners in hospitals, home health workers, nursing assistants, these are the jobs that are growing the fastest. Those are the jobs of the future. They can't be done by technology, whereas technology is replacing a lot of those clerical roles. But they don't provide that stability, that middle-class life, those things people need benefits. And they're hard on the body. So I worry about what this means for women in the future. It seems to me the barrier for women to enter the middle class, the entry is higher education. And we can talk more. There's a lot of barriers still to lower income women getting those degrees to be a medical assistant or whatever it is. And whereas before a clerical job, you don't necessarily have to have more than a high school degree. It's a stepping stone into the middle class. So while I think we have a good news story that we're building on for women, I think some of our resilience that we will see up ahead to weathering some of those technological changes could be hampered. Well, I think it's really interesting what you're saying about this bifurcation and hollowing out in the middle, which is going on, I guess, for both men and women. But the education story is so interesting. Who would have imagined even 20, 30 years ago, which I can remember well, being the age I am, that we never thought women would be as educated as men. And they're much more educated now. The gaps are getting quite large. Yet the bad news there is that there are still barriers. There are still big pay gaps. Even among full-time men and women, women are only earning about 83 cents on the dollar. And that seems to have to do with the kinds of occupations that women work in and the sort of wages that those occupations can command, which in turn may actually be a reflection of the fact that so many women are in them, women's work is devalued. But for whatever reasons, we've still got a big pay gap. I'd love for both of you to talk a little bit more about these barriers or the pay gap and what you think is going on there. Stephanie, can we start with you there? Sure. So I think there are two issues. I mean, one is precisely the tremendous amount of occupational segregation that still exists in the labor force. And as you mentioned, a lot of times occupations are paid less just because it's women doing them. And so until we see just a greater, more equal mix of men and women doing a lot of these jobs, I actually don't expect 
the wages to rise in some of these industries absent some external force. And so I think the reasons why we still see so much occupational segregation is actually something we don't understand very well. I mean, some people have looked at whether there are some preferences around it. There are questions around whether certain occupations are really open to everyone. So for some jobs, especially unionized jobs, there can be very high barriers to entry and there can be difficulties for women to get jobs in those industries. So there could be just some bias against women in certain industries. The occupational segregation itself, I think, is a big issue and something that actually we could do more work on. Another problem is that even when men and women are doing similar work, and even in very high-paid professional occupations where men and women both have a lot of education to be doing these jobs, I'm talking about things like law and business and medicine, women and men often start out very similarly situated early in their careers. But what we find is that over time, the women end up falling behind in terms of their promotions and their pay. And a lot of this coincides with family formation and women's childbearing years. And that these are jobs that require extensive hours of work, don't allow for very many breaks, And there's a big penalty if you want to take time off from work or reduce hours. And so I think that even in cases where we think women have made a lot of progress, I mean, women get the majority of medical degrees in this country. They, you know, are equally likely as men to be coming out of law school and business school. But still, even in these fields, we see that over the course of careers, women fall behind men. Right. Molly, do you want to add to that? That was a pretty complete answer, but... Just to second what Stephanie said, I've grown increasingly frustrated. I've been part of this quote-unquote future of work conversation, and it's almost always when I'm on a panel, I sense that when people say future of work, they mean the future of work for male workers. That's been really dominating the discussion, and I've tested this by Google imaging the word worker or putting robots in work or AI in work, it's always a cartoon of a man, either a blue-collar worker or a man in business. We just have this national conception of work equals men, and as a result, all the policy discussions I'm having about how do we make sure that as work is changing, whether because of technology or any other factor, workers do well, it's by and large men that we're thinking about. And I think our policies extend to that. And I think the value, what Stephanie was saying, the value that we give workers, women are just get the short shrift. When I'm on a panel, I always bring up that the biggest job, the job of the future is a home health worker. And it's like eyes glaze over, you know, this is just not even necessarily seen as work in the same way as a manufacturing worker or some other type of work. And the second thing is, again, as I've been thinking about the future of work and technology, so many of those fast-growing good jobs, like the winning jobs of the way work is changing, which are tech-oriented, software development, computer science in some way, those are just disproportionately male-dominated. And not just because women don't rise up into them, it's even in the degrees that people are getting. I see a real worry that when we think about the way the economy is changing and those really high paying knowledge jobs that are driven by technological advances, women are really underrepresented in those jobs. And that really comes down to occupational segregation. And I think that's a major challenge that we need to address. Although I might add, because this was a big focus of one of the papers we commissioned recently, that because women are better educated, 
there is a sense in which they are better prepared to make the shifts that technological change and AI are going to require. And in fact, this paper that was done by some academics that we were working with suggested it was very hard to sort out the two, how much of this is a gender thing and how much of it is an education thing, since they're correlated. But not to get bogged down in that, I think I want to shift a little bit to home responsibilities of men versus women. I mean, we all know, I think, that women still bear the major burden for childcare, for housework, for all of the organizing of the home. I'll never forget being at a seminar at Brookings in which one of our more junior colleagues was talking about this. And she said, you know, my husband is quite ready to go to the store and take a list with him to buy whatever's on the list. But guess who has to put the list together? Guess who has to plan ahead? Guess who has to think about what we're going to have for dinner, whether we have enough canned soup in the house or enough paper towels or whatever. And that's my job. And that's a much more stressful job than just going to the market and picking up whatever is on the list. So I throw that out anecdotally that it's not just a matter of who puts in the most hours, because men are, according to the evidence, putting in more hours at home and more hours in childcare than they used to. And that's the good news. But they're still not doing as much as women. And that creates some of the issues that I think you alluded to, Stephanie, about especially in these high-paid professional jobs that require that you work uh, six days a week and 12 hours a day. It's very hard on women who have those responsibilities. Stephanie, what further thoughts do you have, if any, on that topic? I think that's exactly right. I think that although there have been changes to our legal system that have facilitated women's work, or at least taken down barriers that previously existed to women working, that we really haven't fundamentally changed the organization of our lives, of our social safety net in a way that really promotes the possibility for women with family responsibilities to really participate to their full capacity in the labor force. And that goes for men as well. So I think that the system we have today really relies on one person, typically the woman, being the full-time caregiver at home. So we have not very good support for child care. We have very limited paid family leave, and especially in comparison to other countries. And I think that actually a good part of the second half of the 20th century, the U.S. actually had higher labor force participation rates among women than did European countries. And in recent years, actually, it's been reversed. So now a lot of European countries, including countries that traditionally had very low rates of female participation, like Italy, actually have higher rates of female participation than the U.S. does. And there's been a good amount of research that shows that one of the big differences is the social safety net. So in Europe, they tend to have more child care, subsidized child care, more family leave, And these are policies that are shown to promote female labor force participation. And so I think that there's still a long way we can go 
to providing support for women who want to balance their work and family. And I think the other thing I would just add is that we also want to make sure that these aren't benefits only for women, that men also are free to avail themselves of these benefits. Because when men feel it's okay to take time off to care for their children and that is supported at work, then that will also help to equalize the two-job crunch (laughs) that a lot of women face. Absolutely right. And Molly, going to bring you in in a sec, but I want to just mention, since Stephanie brought it up, that paid family leave is something that is clearly needed. The need for it has been greatly accelerated in the current crisis, and there has been some temporary legislation to deal with that. But we are also going to need an effort to think that through for the longer term. And we do have a major project at Brookings that I happen to be involved in, as does Stephanie, on paid family leave. And we'll be coming out with some new research in that area before too long. But Molly, any final thoughts on this set of issues from you? Yeah, so I think often when we have a discussion about barriers to women advancing and some of the challenges at home, it tends to be a white collar discussion. And I think that could be some cultural influences like the lean in discussion. Last year, I led a team at New America to conduct interviews across the country with about 40 primarily low wage frontline workers in retail and fast food, folks who work at gas stations and grocery stores. And it was stunning how much this concept of a second shift came up over and over and over in really almost every interview with women. And these were a lot of women of color, Hispanic women. There were some cultural factors in there as well. But they all described working on their feet, sometimes getting up at two in the morning and coming home and working until they go to bed, doing all the housework, all the childcare, often sometimes even for their grandchildren. And it was clear that that had real barriers for women. So there was plenty, especially some of the younger women I interviewed in gas stations or in some of these retail jobs who had big dreams. They wanted to be a medical assistant or a graphic designer, but they had children, they had all the housework to do, and they had to work a low-paying job. And there was just no way in that impossible trinity of all of that childcare and housework, having a full-time job, and somehow finding the time and resources to also study The other thing that came up a lot that really surprised me was how often women said they'd been offered a promotion. And I don't mean to CEO, I mean to the next layer up of a first or second rung of management in a gas station or in a Target, and they turned it down. And part of it was because the hours were going to get crazy and they had childcare issues, but often as they described it as being stressful, managers didn't get the support that they felt they needed. So there were real barriers to women even moving up within these lower paying jobs to a better paying job that might have benefits. We didn't hear that from any man. Every single man we interviewed talked about their dream. I'm going to be better off when I can get to become the Burger King manager. But there were all sorts of obstacles standing in the way of women. And so it's really a universal issue. It's as much for the woman who could have been CEO of McKinsey as it is for somebody working in a gas station. I'm so glad you brought the focus back to that group of low-wage women and women of color because I think those of us who write about these issues and study them, so many of us are professionals and we tend to not spend as much time thinking about the lives of those women and it's got to be so much tougher. And going back to the puzzle that I think Stephanie posed earlier about why we have so much 
occupational segregation and why, as you say, those women don't always accept a promotion. It really goes back to how people see their roles. And there's just a feedback loop here that I don't pretend to know how to think about. That if you're grown up and been socialized to think that to be a good person, you have to be a good parent and a good family member. Somebody else has been brought up to think, well, the most important thing in life is to be a good breadwinner, which is what men are taught. Then how do we get out of that loop? And so that's really an interesting issue going forward. And with that as background, I now want to ask a really big and probably impossible question, but I'm going to put both of you on the spot and ask the following, which is we focused in this series, the 19A series, on the last 100 years and what has happened to women since the 19th Amendment was passed. And I want you to now think about the next 100 years, especially in the U.S., but even globally. What is it going to look like 100 years from now? What is gender equality going to look like? Are we still going to have big differences or not? And what do we need to do to achieve the goal of gender equality 100 years from now? What would your priorities be? As I say, I know those are impossible questions, but speculate or reflect on them if you can. Maybe, Stephanie, we should start with you. So I am optimistic that because we're having these discussions now, so in the open, that we really can make progress on these issues. I think when I've been studying why it was that women's labor force participation increased so much over the last century, actually one of the really interesting case studies was what happened around the Second World War. So that was a time when women came into the labor force in response to the huge needs of the war effort. Men were fighting the war and women were required at home to be helping to produce the arms and other things that the country needed to fight the war. And that had a really lasting impact on the way the country viewed women's work. So it's true, when the soldiers came home, a lot of women were forced out of their jobs. But the experience that those women gained from having worked and the experience that their children gained, actually, having had mothers who were working, had a lasting impact on female labor force participation. And actually, like, the sons of women who worked in the Second World War were, like, more likely to have wives who worked. (laughs) And, yeah. (laughs) And so... I think that our society can change and that even thinking now, you know, what Molly talked about, about how we're recognizing the importance of what we've previously considered low-wage work. And I think because it was seen as low-wage work, it was seen as not valuable work. I think the experience we're having of that work now really can change how we view it, how it's compensated and how we treat those workers. And so I think that actually makes me very hopeful for the future. And I think I'll also just add one other thing on a more personal note, which is I'm the mother of both a son and a daughter. So I see these dynamics playing out in my household, and I realize it's my responsibility not only to raise 
thoughtful children who are smart, but also to really think about the gender dynamics in my household. So my son is sitting and reading and not clearing the table. And it's always my daughter who's emptying the dishwasher. I call them both on it. And I try to model for them positive home and work life. And I think my husband does as well. He does a lot of the childcare. And so I think if we are conscientious about it now, then I think that that just will help our children to be less constrained by norms around gender than even I was growing up in the wake of the second wave of the feminist movement. And I think that that also bodes well for the future where people just, I think in a sense, when you ask what my vision is, it's that people aren't constrained by their gender and feel that they can become what they want to become. And I think that as we have these discussions and model this behavior to the best of our abilities ourselves, I'm not saying we're always perfect at it, but that can really help. Well, Tom, what I hear you saying is really interesting now. You're saying that norms and preferences are shaped by experience. And so the World War II experience, the recent experience with the virus, what kind of family you grow up in and what kind of roles your parents play really have big feedback effects on attitudes and norms. And there's that interplay there that's so interesting. Molly, your thoughts? Well, I have to say, I feel more optimistic now after reading Janet Yellen's essay to kick off the series because it really put me back 100 years. I think it's breathtaking how far women have come. And I try to put it even in my own personal terms. My grandmother, she's passed away, obviously, but she'd be about 110 now. And she's a maid. She was an uneducated immigrant from Ireland. She's a housekeeper like a lot of the housekeepers I've been interviewing for this series in hospitals. And she was limited in what she was able to do 100 years ago. She stopped working. She had kids. My mom went to college. She got a master's. She was a teacher because that was the set of options in front of her. And I have a master's degree from Harvard, and I do amazing work that I love every day that's fulfilling to me personally. And I have a one-year-old, and I imagine what are her opportunities moving forward and what's possible. And like Stephanie, when I think about my husband and how much more active he is than his own father and the expectations on each generation, that makes me feel hopeful. But I would say one of the things that makes me hopeful is I think our political representation of women might go a little faster even than some of our economics. And I think that's going to make a difference. One of my graduate school advisors, Rohini Pandey, had done some great work in India showing that female political representation did have a material impact on policy choices of things women wanted. And when I think about the fact that the pay of a home health aid is dictated by Medicaid reimbursement rates, that's a policy choice that reflects what society values. But most of the policymakers I see championing those workers are women. My personal view is that as we have someday a female president and we have more women leadership who are able to weigh in on some of these policy choices, whether it's minimum wage or how much we value and pay some of our public sector workers who are predominantly women, I really do feel hopeful that that will have an impact on the real economic value that these workers who are bringing so much societal value, how much they get back in return. 
Well, I think what you're both saying, and I couldn't agree more, is that the strides that women have made are just quite remarkable. And I, as the oldest of the three of you, can tell you lots of stories about how bad things were in the bad old days. But they have definitely changed for the better. And I think that you're both optimistic about the future, as am I. And that's a nice note on which to leave this. And so I want to thank both of you a lot for doing this and uh, turn this back to Fred Dews. My thanks to Isabel Sawhill, Stephanie Aronson, and Molly Kinder for participating in this important conversation. You can find more research about gender equality on our website, brookings.edu slash 19A. Special thank you to my colleague, Emily Cleffy Tristani, who read the text of the 19th Amendment at the top of this episode. The Brookings Cafeteria podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, starting with audio engineer Gaston Reparedo. Bill Finan and Robert Wicks of the Brookings Institution Press do the book interviews. Thanks also to my colleagues Adriana Pita, Marie Wilkin, and Chris McKenna for their collaboration. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, The Current, and our events podcast. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.